From quantum physics to poetry, from neuroscience to geography, from philosophy to immersive realities, Building 21 is a space where one can explore, play with, manipulate, bend, break, and probe the multifaceted dimensions of ideas, knowledge, and thinking. Raj Agarwal is a surgeon, specializing in laparoscopic surgery. He received his PhD from Imperial College London, with a thesis on virtual reality and hand motion analysis in laparoscopic surgery. He is currently the Chief Growth and Strategy Officer at Panda Health. Before joining Panda Health he held the position of Vice President of Strategic Partnership at Thomas Jefferson University. From 2014 to 2017, he was the director of the Steinberg Center for Simulation and Interactive Learning at McGill University. Hi, Dr. Agarwal. Thank you for sitting down with me. Um, it's lovely having you here today on our, on our Building 21 podcast. Um, I'd love for, uh, for you to give a little bit of an introduction of yourself to everyone who's listening today. Great. Thank, thanks, Salome. And, um, you know, thanks uh, for the opportunity to, to talk to you all um, about the great work that you're doing at Building 21 um, at McGill. Um, so probably the most important place in terms of introducing myself, I spent three years at McGill as a faculty member. Um, as an associate professor and a GI surgeon. Um, that was from 2014 to 17. And I was also director of the Steinberg Center for Simulation and Interactive Learning at that same time. And so really, you know, uh, fulfill the role of a clinician, a scientist, an educator, and also an innovator, right? Um, in terms of my more General background, um, I'm born and brought up in the UK, um, always wanted to be a doctor from the age of four years old. It's one of my earliest memories of wanting to be a doctor and um, really went through um, all the parts of medical school and residency training and really started my scientific career more formally when during my surgery residency, I did a PhD in virtual reality and robotic technologies and how they apply to healthcare. And then uh, um, completed all my my training and um, moved to the US almost a decade ago, um, spent a few years at the University of Pennsylvania um, uh, doing clinical practice again science and again um, working kind of cross-discipline, so working with the Faculty of Engineering around robotic platforms, working with the Faculty of Education around digital platforms for education. And then, as I said, spent three wonderful years at um, McGill and again worked very much cross-faculty um, whilst my focus was was around um, kind of simulation education. It really was broader than that around healthcare innovation. And we did a bunch of really interesting topics um, where we worked with the Faculty of Engineering, the um, Faculty of Management, um, the Faculty of Education, saying how do we put our collective goals together to drive forward um, healthcare uh, from the McGill perspective. And then interestingly, we worked outside of McGill but within Montreal with um, Le Grand Ballet Canadien. Um, we did some interesting approaches around beauty and healthcare there and that's um, uh, through that process is when I met um, Dr. Dien. Uh, and then uh, after McGill I've spent the last three years um, in a innovation and ventures role at a uh, large health system in Philadelphia uh, called Jefferson Health System. So really how do we 
partner and invest in um, early stage companies. Um, and with that, it almost seems natural now, but it wasn't a few years ago. Now I'm fully in the commercial space where I am the chief growth and strategy officer of a early stage company um, that's looking to improve how health systems and digital health um, companies work together. So that's a little bit about my background. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for that introduction. It sounds like a, a fascinating professional um, professional path. Um, and I, I think from you know the people at Building Twenty One, and I'm not. Some people will have listened to your your previous um, lecture, but you you spoke so so eloquently and, and beautifully about the you know the importance of beauty, the importance of beauty in medicine, um, and and listening to to um, to you speak of your experience at the ballet. Um, I just wanted to ask you, where where do you see this place of, of beauty? Um, I mean, how has it, how, how did you become so interested in it? Was it a question of being interested in, in notions of um, synchronicity, questions of balance and equilibrium and the work that you were doing as a doctor? Or how did you become so interested with the, the concept of beauty itself? Um, yeah, it, it's... It's an interesting question because <clears throat> it almost happened without me knowing about it, right, mm -hmm. is what I would say. And um, look, I've always been very um, much a perfectionist in everything I've done, even when I was, uh, you know, in middle school, high school. Um, I, I enjoyed doing things right um, and got pleasure out of it. Um, even when I was mowing the lawn at my parents' house in the English countryside, I, I enjoyed having finished mowing the lawn and you could see the perfect stripes um, on the lawn, right? That, that's, uh, so I, I very much um, just, that's, that's just me, that's who I am um, about that kind of, it's got to look right. Mm -hmm. um, and that relates to um, something that when I was training in surgery, one of my mentors, this is back in London, used to say at the end of every operation, we'd do a complex cancer resection operation of the stomach, and he'd say, Raj, if it looks nice, then it probably is right, right? And that kind of goes back to those stripes on the lawn, right? And the, the kind of serendipity was that um, I had that as a construct, and that's how I'd kind of done everything in my professional life um, to then. And it was, gosh, probably 12 years ago now where I watched my first ballet performance at the Royal Opera House in London. And that was really where I saw what I would describe as technical excellence and being delivered as beauty. Right? Mm -hmm. So up to then it was all very kind of physics, maths, and it was kind of lines and straight and whatever. And that was the moment I would say where I was watching these ballet dancers and I could name, you know, which muscles they were using when I could see them and I could see the strength there and I could see that the anatomy, quite frankly, mm -hmm. right? but it wasn't about the anatomy. It was about how do these individuals and then this group of individuals come together to create something where I can just sit back and say, oh my God, that's beautiful, right? And that is probably the moment where I started thinking about what I would call choreography mm -hmm. in healthcare, right? So whether that's choreography in my operating room or that's choreography of a health system or and I mean that either in a health system such as a McGill or a health system such as the National Health Service in the UK, right? Or a global health system, right? Um, and 
at the end of the day, if I now try to put this, put those two worlds together of that kind of those lines on the on the lawn, right? That kind of physics maths approach and this kind of beauty approach, right? It really is about how do you bring people and technology together in a process to achieve a desired output. Mm -hmm. And going back to the ballet, that desired output was beauty, right? And the process is choreography, right? And the the inputs, the people and the technology is just, you know, these ballet dancers that are on stage and, um, you know, even down to the lighting and the sound that make it look um, really so um, engaging, right? That you remember it, you you dream about it, quite frankly, mm -hmm. right? And so putting that together um, to, you know, for the here and now, even in my role at this company, Panda Health, of how do health systems procure digital health technologies, just in the way we run our lives in every other way. Like I haven't been to a bank um, for many years. I haven't been to a travel agent for many years. Um, I still go to the supermarket though. That's probably gonna change, but everything is done digital, you know, generally on our phones or on our um, laptops. And how do we transform healthcare in that kind of digital experience, right? And again, it's about choreography to create, and it, it's, it's challenging to think about it, a beautiful experience. Like how can you say that, you know, someone learning that they have um, stage two breast cancer and are gonna need to have surgery and chemotherapy can be a beautiful experience. Well, what I would say on that is that it needs to be a choreographed experience, right? from the um, perspective of the patient and their family and not to be what I um, politely call a clunky experience because that is what unfortunately healthcare is about. And um, to be less polite, it's about the resilience of individuals that includes patients and their families to manage those drop balls, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that is really how I'm thinking about my role right now it, it's um it it really is choreography um uh, um around um different facets of our lives of which healthcare is one of the most important facets right of course and then but what does a well choreographed healthcare system experience let's say look like yeah. um how can you, you know, have a hand on, on these different elements? I mean, there's, you know, there's innovation, there can be innovation in, in different sectors, but how can you bring together uh, harmoniously a single experience that can be considered beautiful? I, I know that at least from my experience, I, you know, I can see a patient, I, I used to work in South Africa. I, I did work on um, user patient user preferences, um, you know, interactions with, with medical staff. And that is often a very beautiful experience, um, seeing a patient interact with, with a provider, um, seeing the trust, you know, there's an entire relationship that forms um, and you can consider that to be a beautiful, beautiful act. I mean, one could even say that the medicine in itself is a form of beauty. It's a form of extension. Um, it, it's providing something of, of grace. Um, but, but to come back to my question, how do you think that, how can we really have a harmonious system that is well choreographed in the healthcare space? So there's a number of layers um, to your question. What I would say is traditionally, and it's not just healthcare, um, but it's, it's 
many, many entities of society, whether it's healthcare, whether it's education, whether it's the prison, um, it's all about control, right? And mm -hmm. so in order to be able to control, um, and this isn't about controlling people, it's about controlling the system, right? It, there's standardization, right? So why does a the old-fashioned hospital ward actually look not dissimilar to a prison, right? You know, you have all of the rooms there and you have one person who can literally look at everything um, that's happening and not dissimilar to a classroom or a, a, a set of classrooms. It's how society was grown up and uh, how does a factory look the same? Um, uh, it's, it's about standardization, right? And we now know that, well, we probably knew it then, but we didn't pay much lip service to it. But, you know, healthcare is a very personal experience. And when you engage as an individual, then the outcomes can be better. The challenge there is that you do need to have some degree of standardization, right? Because you can't just have everyone saying, well, you know, ah, this is how I want to run my healthcare and this is how I want to run it and whatever, right? Or education, right? You know, um, then then there would just be um, uh, a, a completely anachronistic state, right? If everyone was just allowed to do whatever they wanted. So there's, how do you go from standardization to personalization? There's a phrase I really like and it's called mass personalization, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you create enough structures where you can get what you want out of the healthcare system or you can get what you want out of the education system, right? Which might be slightly different from what someone else wants, right? Um, but it still feeds into those structures. And then there's another layer to this, uh, uh, Salome, that I'd say, which is around innovation. And you mentioned that. And my kind of concept for innovation is there's two, I, I would say, um, and one is very topical right now. One concept is this concept of Brownian motion. I don't know if you've um, learned about Brownian motion when you were in school, yes. right? <laughs> when right. you look at mm -hmm. molecules under a microscope, they're going zip, 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 zip. And it's what I call this concept of unintended collisions that occur, right? And I would say, even to personalize this, you know, me meeting Dr. Dn was an unintended collision. Why, why would a poet, right? meet a, a surgeon right and why would they do work together right that just doesn't make much sense in the way we structure our um, education systems right now but we did connect right so there's unintended collisions um can can be positive or negative right they can they can work or not work um so that's one approach which is very um opportunistic or it's wholly hoped opportunistic right okay and then there's another approach that I think is a really ripe model for um, innovation, not just in healthcare, but I'm going to use the model of um, how um, viruses um, actually uh, evolve, right? And I don't know if you, you know about this. I've been thinking about this for probably over a decade, um, but it's quite topical now. So when a virus evolves, um, it does that in two ways. Um, it can have incremental um, uh, evolution. So, you know, a few of its um, uh, uh, gene pairs um, um, modify in the, M uh, in the mRNA, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, that's called antigenic drift, right? Okay. Or there can be a completely new set of genes come into that, which don't normally come from another species, right? Which is what we've seen with avian flu and um, swine flu and so forth. And that's called antigenic shift. So there's a step change. So all viruses are generally kind of evolving, right? And if we mm -hmm. say that that evolution is positive, they're generally kind of on a gradual uh, improvement. 
And then suddenly there's a step change, right? And then that leads to a pandemic um, where, because there's no herd immunity, right? We all know this now, society knows this. Um, it was just scientists that knew this previously. And that's kind of my approach for um, thinking through um, innovation and um, in my lens of healthcare innovation, where there is gradual kind of incremental change happening just because we as human beings and in terms of our structures and processes, things are generally getting better, right? Mm -hmm. But then there might be what I would call a Copernican revolution where suddenly something changes, right? So um, we can call it the, the, the fourth industrial revolution, right? The digital health revolution, or we can call it, you know, 150 years ago, the agricultural um, revolution, right? Um, and so bringing it back to kind of healthcare, right, which is what I know, um, healthcare has had dramatic changes, which I would say, you know, almost 100 years ago was the evolution of anesthesia, right? That that was the evolution of antibiotics, right? The evolution of transplants, right? And now we're down to stem cell transplants, right? Um, and then more recently, the evolution of, which I was involved in 20 years ago, where we started calling it image-guided surgery, probably 30 mm -hmm. years ago now, right? Where um, you'd actually do surgery using devices, right? Rather than instruments, right? And now where we're at is um, thinking about um, this, yeah, this digital revolution, whether that's Internet of Things, whether that's AI and machine learning um, uh, and down to whether that's the smartphone in your pocket and how that can uh, be a part of pervasive um, um, healthcare as well. So um, it's a very long winded answer. Um, to your um, to your great question, but there's there's lots of layers from the standardized piece to the personalized piece, the mass personalization piece, to then this kind of unintended collisions piece, and then this kind of you know what I call antigenic shift and drift piece. And how do you put all that together as a as an innovator, as a healthcare provider, as an individual patient, and then for society? And quite frankly, I think you need all of the above. Mm -hmm. Um, wonderful. Um, as a, a bit of a separate question, but I think this is also an important one for, you know, the future of the medical curriculum. How, how do you think teachers, students can incorporate the idea of beauty? Um, can it ameliorate? Yeah. I mean, patient provider, um, interactions, can it, do you think it can have better outcomes on better health outcomes? Is it an essential part of the future of medical education? Can, can students think of beauty as, as, a, as a product of their work, as a desired outcome, or maybe as a, as a part of the experience maybe of becoming, becoming a physician? Yeah, it, it is, um, Salome, a related question. Look, from an education perspective, you've got to have, you've got to have your base by saying, okay, well, you know, how do you want to learn about medicine? And it's kind of uh, a free-for-all that's, that's not going to work. You've got to have your base of whether right. it's um, yeah. biology, psychology, you know, maths and, and those kind of things, right? Over and above that, where I would take your answer to is when we talk about, and I've already talked about it, this kind of choreographic approach, right? And we think very much about the output of that in terms of the care that's delivered to the patient and to their family, right? And we don't spend enough thinking about enough time thinking about how that choreography actually gives satisfaction is probably the simplest way to put it, but it doesn't feel strong enough. Um, satisfaction or engagement, mm -hmm. satisfaction and engagement for the provider, right? 
if I'm working in an environment that works, I mean, just think about the last time you tried to use a device, a tool, um, a bicycle or something, and it didn't work, right? How frustrated did you get, right? Mm-hmm. And you wanted to get from A to B on the bicycle, but it just didn't work. You kept falling off or the wheel was loose or that kind of stuff. And it gets you frustrated, gets you angry, and you might give up. Mm-hmm. And so when we think about this kind of choreography and delivering beauty for the end user, for that mass personalization that I talked about, we shouldn't forget about the actual stakeholders that are delivering that care. And I'll take it back to the the ballet dancers. I've seen a ton of ballet, right? I used to be on the board of Le Grand Ballet Canadien. I was on the board of the Pennsylvania Ballet. And, you know, the pre-COVID days when I used to travel to San Francisco or Boston, whatever, I would always check the ballet schedule and, you know, I'd finish up my business meeting and then try and capture ballet. And I'm more engaged in watching a ballet performance when I can see that the dancers are more engaged, whether that's through their eyes or whether that's just through their passion, right? And I've watched so much, and many of my friends now are ballet dancers, they say, when your heart's not in it, you can't dance well. And the audience knows, right? And so that, and back to healthcare, that delivery of care experience, right? For us to engage our stakeholders and, you know, getting back to the students, right? So how they learn, they need to engage in that, right? So we need to not just pay lip service, say, hey, this is a choreographed, a choreographed approach, but just say, just as a ballet dancer needs to be engaged to, to deliver a great performance, we need to engage our, our students, our residents, our um, faculty to be able to deliver the care that is that kind of beautiful care um, mm. to, um, to our patients. Um, so that, that's quite frankly a concept. How do we create that into a construct and operationalize that? I don't know the, the exact answer to that. That's, that's, uh, that's a whole nother conversation um, uh, for how do you um, kind of take that concept and make it real. Right. I wanted to follow up on this idea, and you know, you spoke about this previously in our in our last in the last lecture. The idea of um, you know removing control, removing regulation, and then creating a space where there can be where there can be innovation, there can be creativity. Do you think that COVID has pushed for this kind of thinking a little bit more? Do you think people are more interested in taking taking risks and and being all right? I suppose in the innovation and the healthcare space. Of, of trying new things, um, maybe starting, not starting from scratch totally, but doing something without necessarily a safety net? Or is it maybe not the right time to be doing that? Um, I know that people have been saying the healthcare system wasn't prepared adequately for COVID, the innovation hadn't followed up, and now we're suffering the consequences because we weren't prepared. But can this be a nice awake, a, a, an important awakening in the healthcare industry to push for more innovation And, and to push for notions of, of not a free fall, a controlled free fall, in your opinion? So I do have an opinion on this. And I would say the, the kind of Silicon Valley approach of move fast and break things doesn't work in healthcare, right? There's an article in Forbes actually published just yesterday, which said, if you move fast and break things in healthcare, then the risk is that people die. What I would say to your question is actually it may surprise you it's less about innovation from a technology perspective right and i would say what we need more of is innovation 
and loss of control and your word free fall from a cultural perspective, from a cultural and a hierarchical perspective. Right? Mm -hmm. A lot of the technologies, even with COVID in the last 12 months, when you talk about telemedicine or virtual care, that's not new, right? You and I have been probably using FaceTime for over a decade, right? That's all it is, right? Mm -hmm. the, the upswing happened because of there was acceptance of doctors and health systems that if they didn't do this, well, it wasn't acceptance, it was forced acceptance. If they didn't do this, they wouldn't see any patients, right? Number one. And number two, there was acceptance of policy that they needed to regulate for this rather than against it. And number three, which is the most powerful thing, is it gave patients choice. It wasn't on the health system or the doctor's terms. Now it became on the patient's terms. And I remember after the pandemic or during, sorry, during the pandemic, but after it was um, the worst part of it, I was back in my clinical office in September last year. And I remember overhearing one of my administrators on the phone to one of my patients and asking my patient what time they would like to see Dr. Agarwal next week in the clinic. And then saying, okay, nine o'clock next Tuesday, would you like to come in or would you like to have a telehealth visit? That would never have happened pre-COVID. It would be nine o'clock next Tuesday, you'll be here. No option. And so I think that's where we need more of in terms of, you can call it innovation, I call it cultural innovation or kind of breaking those hierarchical aspects where patients need to say, I don't run any other part of my life like this, right? Mm -hmm. I don't go to the travel agent. I don't have to go to the cinema to book a ticket, right? And then come back to actually watch the film. So why do I need to come into the doctor's office when all you've got to do is just talk to me? There might be some times when it's appropriate. And so that's where I think the, um, the driver needs to be in order to, you know, we can't lose control in healthcare, but we need to enhance the ownership control is probably a good word of the the end users the patient but also mm -hmm. as i mentioned earlier around this kind of choreographed beautiful approach with the analogy of the bicycle but also enable the providers not to just feel like they're factory workers i have to do this because i'm told well maybe you don't okay if you want to come in and not do your clinic on them um, you know monday to Thursday, 9 a.m. till 12 and then 2 till 5. Maybe you want to do it on a Sunday night. And if there are patients there and you can do it in telemed and you can do it, you know, on your own terms, why not? And so I think that is that kind of culture and hierarchy is what we're beginning to break the back off in COVID and less so in terms of, wow, there's so much more technology out there. The technology is not new. It's been around for 20 years, right? It's the application of that technology. And that's really where the thrust of my career has been is I'm not a technologist per se, but I apply those technologies to ensure that they work. And by work means deliver that value proposition, whether that's high quality healthcare, whether that's reasonable costs of healthcare, whether that's access for everyone who needs that healthcare, and whether that's the experience that everyone deserves from a patient and a provider perspective. So, that's where the, in my mind, the innovation needs to head to deliver on its promise. And right now we have a lot of innovation that gets turned on and then doesn't deliver. And the reason it doesn't deliver is it doesn't engage with the people in the process in terms of the workflows, right? Mm -hmm. The current workflows have got to engage in those. And then on the output side, it needs to engage with the desired value proposition.
Wonderful. No, that's, I mean, absolutely fascinating. It's true. We're, we're always talking about you know, exponential growth in the technology center. We're thinking about forms of technology that are going to outpace us. And often the question is, how do we, how are we going to better incorporate technologies that we already have and that we're going to have to deal with as opposed to creating technologies that we know have a purpose that we know will have a specific use in the specific industry hypothetically, but it's amazing to see how, how different forms of technology can be repurposed in the healthcare field and, and beyond that. I mean, I personally think COVID has been a time, a great example of, if anything, resilience um, in multiple in multiple sectors. And it's it's been a forced conversation. It's a bit unfortunate that it had to come to a pandemic maybe to make people think a little bit differently. We could have had telemedicine a long time ago, but if if it'll open a new chapter that's a bit more positive, then you know we, we have to be at least happy for that, I suppose. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree with you. It's sad that it took this, um, but then you've got to make the best you can out of a crisis. And that's, um, you know, when the crisis happens, you know, I wrote an article uh, over a year ago on LinkedIn about, you know, the, the silver lining of the crisis, the pandemic. And um, it, it's just so, so important um, that we make good on this uh, where we are right now, rather than become complacent where we are now. Right. No, of, of course. And I, I mean, I would say that beauty can be a great counteracting force to complacency. It's a creative process. It's a something that has, to, you know, and it requires an active investment. And it's, um, I'm sure that people in, in the scientific and the medical and the tech and the tech world are, are must be very interested to be, you know, hearing and speaking of these of these concepts, because it's it's so it's it's not common to think of maybe how something in, in the artistic world can you know, bring such value in, in another sector and thinking of beauty as a product and not necessarily, I mean, thinking of beauty as an experience, of course, but also thinking of it as a desired output and a desired product is, is a very interesting concept. That's what makes it beautiful, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Have a good day. Thank you, Dr. Agarwal, for sitting down with me today. And to everyone listening, please tune in again soon. Thank you.